So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. I hope you're well and that you're looking forward to the final push to the end of the year. It's been a really busy couple of weeks for me. Um, also getting the chance to go out there and meet lots of corporate clients as they've arranged conferences and leadership away days. So it's been brilliant to get out there and, and meet a few of the clients and try and tackle some of the challenges around kickstarting their new goals for, for next year and starting to think about resilience and hybrid working and fast tracking some of the high potential leaders in the organisation. So if you need any support, just drop me a note through to hello at sportingedge.com and I'd love to get back on the road into your offices and to help your staff as we look forward to an exciting year ahead. It's also been great to see Ben Stokes signal his availability for the Ashes series. I know we're not all cricket fans on the podcast, but he's a, a world-class performer and it's great news that he'll be you know, back after his mental health break and it's given him some space, time and energy that he needs to get back firing on all cylinders again. Covid's had such an impact on sport with fixtures being crammed into smaller and smaller windows. Biosecure bubbles add more stress and strains and the tension between fixtures, finances and player welfare are at an all-time high. So it'll be really interesting to see how new sustainable models develop where we start to either see more players taking breaks and more coaches taking breaks or we start to see shorter tournaments with bigger gaps in between because it's just not sustainable at the moment but the organizing uh, you know boards have got two to three year future tour commitments to honor um, and the finances around the, the tv deals are already scheduled so it seems to be a really challenging period for everyone, all the stakeholders in sport to get the right balance here. I just want to say a very quick thank you to everyone that gave a five-star rating and review for the show in recent weeks. It's a simple thing to do, but it makes a massive difference to helping people to find the show. So thank you very much for taking those moments to do it. And thanks to your kindness and generosity in sharing the show, we also featured in first place in Management Today's Top 10 recommended podcast for business. So hello also if you're joining our community off the back of that. You're most welcome. Well this week in our house seems to be all about the kids social schedule with them getting dressed up as ghosts and witches for their various Halloween parties. So as teenagers now 
They've lost that fear of bats and cobwebs that were hanging on people's doors, but they still enjoyed the experience of dressing up and hanging around with their friends. So this week's theme is fear, a trick or a treat. Here's a taste of what's to come. Fear keeps us alive. Um, if it weren't for fear, I'd be crossing the street, you know, 12th and Broadway, and when a truck is running the red light about to hit me, I wouldn't respond. You knocked it on the head. It was the fear of being judged by other people. And it's just, I just wanted to run away and hide and just get as far away from being in that situation as possible. Fear is an emotion that for elite level operators is simply another data point. So this is an indication that something might be about to go wrong and you should attend to it and then go ahead and perform what you're supposed to perform. So when your brain's looking at all of these things to know, it can say, ooh, that one, the one that was when I felt afraid or the one that was when I felt really happy. So it's like putting a little flag on top of an endless array of tiny little mountains of memories. Fear seems to be defined as the emotion caused by the perception of danger or threat. And that word perception is going to be critical today. So it's an anticipatory uh, feeling and emotion. When we perceive the danger, our sympathetic nervous system gets triggered to kick off a chain reaction, which helps us to be athletically prepared to fight or flee. So we get that feeling of blood leaving our stomachs, those butterflies in our stomachs. We don't need to be digesting food. If there's a wild monster in the woods, we need to, all that blood to be in our major muscles for locomotion so that we can get out of the way and make a hasty retreat. So that's this sensation we get of butterflies in our stomach as that blood leaves the digestive area and goes into the muscles. We also get our breathing quickening and the heart rate elevates to shunt the blood around the body and that's the effect of adrenaline in our system. So this is a very powerful physiological reaction to our perception of a threat. But interestingly, it's our belief system that triggers it. It's our imagination filling in the dots to keep us safe. Two people could have very different reactions to the rustling leaves behind us in the woods because one saw the squirrel and the other one is petrified of snakes and overreacts to every noise in nature. Every stick they think is a killer cobra. So this example, the noise or the signal wasn't the issue. It was the individual's perception of the threat that caused the terror. Those of you that have followed my content for a while on LinkedIn or through the podcast or, or the workshops that we've run will know that I have a fascination with thinking clearly under pressure and, and stress and its impact on us. Definitely triggered by me choking in front of 120,000 people during an England cricket match in India. So I'll never forget that feeling. And one of the people that I interviewed was an expert neurobiologist called John Coates, who explained the stress response to me in a little bit more detail. And he talked about these three key drivers, which we'll explore in a little bit more detail. There are three main situations um, in which the stress response is most activated. Um, and oddly, it's not so much when the nasty thing happens to you that you are expecting. It's situations of novelty, uncertainty, and uncontrollability. And I think for managers, both of athletes and for employees in the corporate sector, it's really important to understand that because it becomes, it behooves the managers 
to reduce novelty, uncertainty, and uncontrollability during periods when you need the physiology of your employees or your athletes to return to baseline and go through a period of recovery. And quite often people don't quite understand that and particularly in the corporate sector, middle managers often make things worse by introducing more novelty or more uncontrollability into, into say a trading floor or a workplace environment. So unless you understand the physiology, you're going to get it wrong. So these three key factors are like the holy trinity of the stress response, novelty, uncertainty and uncontrollability. And in small doses, you can imagine that novelty is great. It's sort of stimulating and uh, everything can be fun if we're going to new places, new restaurants, new holiday destinations, whatever. When we're in control of that, that's fine. But when everything is out of our control and these three factors combine, that's when the stress response starts to get activated and if everything is changing and novel around us, then we get this, you know, panic response coming in. So to reduce the irrational noise around fear, we need to work with individuals and teams to prepare for this change or to visualise or run simulations about what could happen rather than our brain just going off on one and worrying about the worst case scenario. I'd want to know what new and novel situations could throw me off my guard in my public speech or kicking at goal in the last few minutes of a rugby match. So I'd need to think about and simulate what happens if a loud siren goes off or somebody shouts at something distracting or personal abuse from the crowd. Or imagine you've got to move to a new venue that uh, for your speech. We're trying to make sure that despite the novelty, we're able to stay focused and not become irrational because that's when that can derail that negative catastrophizing can derail your performance and then we've got uncertainty what's going to happen and when's it going to happen all the great horror movies from Halloween rely on this moment of inducing fear and trepidation with the footsteps creeping up behind us on the path or the person hiding in the corner will they be seen by the axe wielding maniac that uncertainty is the key so it definitely engages our brain but our brains like concrete facts, they like cause and effect. And when we're left with a vacuum of information, we tend to make stuff up. And often that can be the worst case scenario. That's why leaders need to over communicate during periods of change. And as anxious individuals, we need to find a cue or a pattern to kick us out of that negative spiral when self-doubt starts to rise. And then we've got uncontrollability. It can be really scary when all the big decisions in your life seem to be in other people's hands, whether it's the government, your boss or your partner. We can easily start to feel like we're helpless and somehow we need to regain our focus on what's in our control and make sure that we action that. While the government tax rate or a move of the company headquarters might be out of our control, our well-being, our attitude and our daily priorities and routines are within our control. And by focusing on these small elements, we gain confidence, we gain control and our span of impact grows and we feel a lot less impotent. Anyone that's had a panic attack will know that we can still be aware of how irrational we're being, but this doesn't stop the cascade of adrenaline and cortisol coursing through our body. Former British number one tennis star Annabel Croft shared with me what this felt like for her 
as the fear derailed her game in a crucial tournament. I think you've knocked it on you knocked it on the head. It was the fear of being judged by other people. And it was the fear that I couldn't control what was going on. So if you have an opponent and they're exposing things out there, it was the fear that I couldn't control it. And when you get if you get nervous and you start to get shackled, you have, the energy that's running through your body is so, um, what's the word, the adrenaline is so uptight, you don't flow, and everything then becomes like disjointed, so instead of just smoothly hitting a ball, everything starts to get really um, disjointed and shackled, and you can't hit through the ball, and then if you can't hit through the ball, you have no power, and then your focus becomes on that rather than the tactics of what you're trying to do to match. Everything becomes magnified, and, and it's just, I just wanted to run away and hide, and just get as far away from being in that situation as possible. And of course it was like going out on stage every time, it was awful. Oh, I'm feeling tense just listening to Annabelle there, and I can relate to that on a visceral level, uh, with my body tensing up and those fine motor skills that I'd perfected in my own cricket career in those calm training arenas, all of a sudden feeling locked up as the stress response kicked in and my major muscle group started to take over and, and felt uh, you know, as if I was bowling a, a cannonball down the pitch rather than a cricket ball. A common acronym for fear is false evidence appearing real. So let's break that down a little bit. False evidence. That's some kind of stimulus happening in the environment, which we then add our own irrational interpretation to, to make it appear real, which then in turn reinforces the sense that that danger was real and was bigger than we first thought. So for Annabelle, that was a sense that everyone in that stadium was judging her and that as their scrutiny rose, her shame and the tension in her body rose until this created a paralyzing negative spiral. So this is the first trick of fear. And actually, we're playing it on ourselves. Jamie Shelton is a clinical psychologist from New York, and she has a great analogy for why this warning system is important, but importantly, how we need to step in and learn to curb it when panic starts to get in the way of our performance. Fear keeps us alive. Um, if it weren't for fear, I'd be crossing the street, you know, 12th and Broadway, and when a truck is running the red light and about to hit me, I wouldn't respond. I need fear to give me that little jolt to make me hurry up and get across the street so I don't get hit. Um, it's biologically programmed to keep us alive. Um, really, it's an alarm system, so, it, well, it's more like a smoke detector. Smoke detector goes off when you burn toast. And smoke detector also goes off when your house is burning down. And that biological alarm system is built in to keep us alive, but sometimes it's triggered. So burn toast might be school play or public speaking. And so our system that's there to keep us alive, to you know, get us ready to fight, to you know, run away, or some people freeze, to freeze and play dead, whatever, that, whatever our sort of tendency might be, is activated. And so that's why we feel it. It's just sort of set off. The best way I think we can try to interact with that is to sort of build awareness of what someone's reaction might be. If you are someone who gets ready to fight, if you get flushed and you feel yourself getting all agitated, or if you have a strong desire to just bolt, 
or if you forget exactly what you're going to say and just go completely blank. <laughs> to, know, to have awareness of oneself and again, to not judge it because it just is in that moment what it is. And then to do something like have, so this is where I think I come in, to have skills available to either assist with um, talking to yourself in a way that's motivating, to have some wonderful mindful skills to be able to acknowledge it, sort of label it and then allow it to go and choose what's the next step just in the process, or even to have a sort of routine in place, to have something that is available to help calm oneself or to get oneself in a motivated or just ready to go state. I love the analogy of the smoke detector. It's activated at both a grade two issue of burning the toast and also a grade 10 issue of the house being ablaze. But we need to be skilled not to run down the street in a blind panic in our underwear if all we've done is burnt the toast. This is where our brain has jumped forward to the impending doom of being burnt alive before we've even investigated if the toast is stuck. So it's not just a case of the fact that we've heard the alarm being triggered in our heads. It's what happens after this that's the really important part. Jamie explains the role of cognitive behavioural therapy or CBT, which gets us to logically dissect situations and to choose a more appropriate response with that language in our mind. This then affects our behaviour. She also mentioned mindfulness, which means that your mind is full of what's needed at that exact moment. Running down the street means that your mind is full of what might happen in the worst case scenario in 10 minutes times in, in that doomsday situation. So that's mind fast forwardness, if you like. To me, mindfulness or focused attention, as I prefer to talk about, is that ability to take our awareness to what's needed and dial down all the anxiety and chatter in our brain so that we can make more rational sense of the situation and move forward in some calm decisions. So fear is actually a secondary emotion because it was our underlying beliefs that got triggered when we heard or saw the trigger in the environment for the first time. We might have been surprised and then only when we added our interpretation to it did the fear come in. So seeing a fast bowler in the opposition's lineup or hearing that you're giving a presentation at your next company conference or panicking before you get on a roller coaster are based on our personal interpretations of that situation and the threat that it poses. So we'll each have a very different reaction to the same stimulus and perhaps seeing a fast bowler in the opposition for one person makes them feel really combative, like they're going to get aggressive and they can dominate. And to somebody else, it activates a memory of being hurt as a youngster. The roller coaster can elicit fear because of our need for control, whereas for some people it's incredibly exhilarating to be slightly out of control. And the public speaking activity activates those feelings of insecurity and imposter syndrome for some, whereas for others it's a chance to showcase your knowledge on the big stage. And the key point here is we've got to understand what these fears trigger in us and be able to do something with it. If we freeze, uh, then we're not going to have the courage to explore what that fear is signalling for us. And it creates like a prison in our mind that we can never escape. So we have to be able to confront some of these fears and, and actually 
blast them with progress and, and taking on some new strategies. If you are one of those people that's petrified by speaking in public, then sign up to our membership with the free code podcast100 at sportingedge.com and you'll have access to hundreds of insights and two brilliant interviews with communication expert Sheila McNamara and Lisa Orkerson. And they share some brilliant insights about how to reframe the pressure of public speaking, how to make sure you're prepared so that you can feel confident when you stand up. They talk about your body language and using your voice and using your breathing and that whole ability to reframe the judgment of the audience on you and making them feel massive and you feeling tiny and powerless and reframing that into something where you've got a message that you want to share with the audience. They don't have it unless you speak and that you're in control of that. You're knowledgeable, you're well prepared, you've visualised your situation, are you going to deliver it seamlessly is a great set of skills. So just go to sportingedge.com forward slash membership and if you use the code podcast 100 you'll get a free month's access it'd be great for you to be able to use all of those strategies to knock out your fear of public speaking so the danger is that we just stop at the fear and we use that freeze response as our coping mechanism but if we have the courage to explore what this fear is really signaling to us then we can take our performance to a new level Performance psychologist Paddy Steinfort has experience of working with elite performers all around the world in a range of different contexts, and he provides an altogether more objective view of what fear represents. Fear is an emotion that, for elite level operators, is simply another data point. So this is an indication that something might be about to go wrong, and you should attend to it and then go ahead and perform what you're supposed to perform. A great example is Uh, one of the best base jumpers in the world, says that they still feel immense fear just before they jump off a cliff. And you should. But he uses that as a data point to double check his equipment, make sure he's got everything right, and then go ahead. If he's not feeling fear, he doesn't do it because something's wrong. And so the important point is that elite level performers still feel emotions. They just deal with it differently than the average person. And the ability to help with fear fear of failure is, again, and if then plan. So if I feel fear or if there is this anxiety going on, then I do this. What do I do? Okay, when I feel fear, I check my equipment and if it's all good, I go and jump. Or as a, uh, an athlete, when I am worried about this event, here's what I do. I check my progressions, I make sure I'm ready, I set up and off I go, or footwork or process. When you're able to disconnect the person from the emotion, recognize that it's there, but don't get involved in it and go and do something else that's important. One of the best lines I've heard is that the presence of the emotion or of the negative thoughts or of the distraction is not the problem. Your thinking about the emotion or the thoughts or the distraction is the problem. And our ability to recognize that we're distracted or feeling something and stop thinking about it and go and act anyway, that's the key to elite level performance. I absolutely love that, using fear as a data point And this idea of I am conscious of my thinking, I am thinking about my thinking, I can separate myself from the emotion, it's just a thought. I recognise the thought but I don't believe it and I don't follow it and I don't immerse myself in the catastrophe that it is trying to suggest to me. I imagine this as somebody standing at the side of the road, first of all noticing lots of different cars and models of of cars and colours of cars going down the street 
we're aware of them, but we don't really do anything about it. We just see cars moving in front of us versus seeing the car and running manically after it down the street and jumping in through the window. And before we know it, we're miles down the road and we're completely lost. Having that ability to recognise that our thoughts are going in front of us like the car in the road, but it's a signal to attend to it. We don't have to rush into it and get carried away. And if we step back and look at it a bit more objectively, that is an enormous step forward. And what we've done is translate this from being an emotional trick that our brain is playing on us to keep us safe to an amazing performance treat. So to be able to turn this from being an emotional trick into one of these brilliant performance treats, we need to override a really powerful part of our brain called the amygdala, which is responsible for triggering this threat response. And I saw some research about a lady that had got a rare disease which caused brain damage. Her medical name as a patient was SM46 and she had a damaged amygdala. She experienced absolutely no fear response when confronted with scary snakes and dangerous tarantulas. And when they showed, you know, really scary clips of horror movies to her, I don't know, The Shining or Silence of the Lambs or whatever it was, uh, she just felt curious and intrigued, uh, where many of us might have been diving behind the sofa for safety. But she also struggled to read negative emotions in people and was caught up in a number of near-fatal incidents or shooting and knife crimes in her area because she didn't show any of the signs of avoidance or needing to flee this dangerous neighbourhood. And researchers also found that she struggled to recall these normally terrifying experiences that would stay with people for life, but she could recall neutral experiences. And this led the psychologists and, and neuroscientists to learn more about the role of the amygdala in coding negative memories. Our interview with psychiatrist and high performance specialist Dr. Deera Harris explains the role that fear and emotions play in our memory and how we need to break the chain to be able to reduce our fear in the future. So if you think about the unbelievable task of taking all the information you get in a single minute, even us sitting across from each other. We hear sights, sounds, the last thing we said, and our amazing brains have to funnel that down into only the parts we need to remember. So one of the best ways we do that is we attach emotion to it, right? So when your brain's looking at all of these things to know, it can say, ooh, that one, the one that was when I felt afraid, or the one that was when I felt really happy. So it's like putting a little flag on top of an endless array of tiny little mountains of memories, okay? So we use the emotions. Failure, especially in a public way or something like a sport, puts a very large flag, right? So when your brain goes back in and it has all these mountains to choose from, it goes to the one with the really big flag. And then over and over that happens. When you need to understand a process, Having a failure flag and an emotional thing is good because it tells you, all right, I want to learn what happened. Once you understand what happened, then it needs to be new targets and new things to work on, right? It's not endlessly reviewing the failure. That's what our brain will do. Find to understand it. And, and that's part of the learning mechanism is that your brain says, go back, understand this. The key is once you understand it, move on. <laughs> you know? And that's the place where a lot of people get stuck. For a brain that's primary goal is safety and survival, it needs rapid access to anything which poses a threat. 
So those purple berries that killed our caveman cousin, or that rumbling roar that tells us that the T-Rex is nearby, those were really useful memories that triggered our heightened awareness because it could have led to a loss of our lives. But now we've replaced this with a loss of our social status or self-esteem, but we still get exactly the same red flags of failure. So not only is it important for us to challenge our irrational fears and phobias about what we're about to do in the future, we have to ensure that as we review and reflect on our past mistakes and mishaps, we do this with less emotion. That's why calm debriefs are absolutely essential so that we can extract the learning and we're not having heated shaming sessions in large groups. So leaders play a critical role here in making sure that when our sports or business performers are confronted with the same stimulus in the future, they see it as less of a threat, less of a loss of self-esteem or, you know, something that's going to trigger shame and more as a challenge that will test them. But they can overcome that challenge with confidence and focus. So the way we communicate, the way we review in our meetings around some of these high stress moments is going to be absolutely critical, not just in the moment to help learning, but also because it will trigger something much calmer and more rational in the future. So we need to replace fear with faith in our ability that we can actually get through this. And we need to replace terror with personal trust that we'll be able to navigate any of the pressures and uncertainties that lie in our way. This can be hard But it's the challenge that stands in all of our ways before we reach our own personal mastery. Let's go back to my interview with Annabelle Croft now as she illustrates what Andy Murray needed to do to reach the peak of his career a few years back. Mats Verlander, who I work with very closely now, um, you know, he's won seven Grand Slams in his career and he's such a wise man. And sometimes when we've sat and watched Andy Murray in the past together, he said to me once, Andy's too afraid to go where he needs to go to find out whether he's good enough. And I thought, wow, that statement just encapsulates so much of what great sportsmen are or, or need to be. And it's about not being afraid to delve to find out whether you are good enough, but just to kind of, yeah, to dig deep and go there. Because I think a lot of sportsmen are fear, they're so fearing of failure that they, they just, they have a cutoff point. And I think the great champions go where they need to go. So we know that a year or two later, Andy Murray did go that extra mile and did confront some of those big questions in his technique and his strategy that he needed to reach the next level. Whether it was a fear of failure, a fear of letting others down or a fear of success, he embraced it and found the answer along with three Grand Slam titles. I think Annabelle and Mats Verlander's challenge is a good one to us all. Maybe we all need to move out of our comfort zone and through that fear zone and keep going before we reach our true potentials. We're all at our best when we're pioneering and exploring, so we can't let that fear stop us. We need to be honest and we need to be self-aware and commit to tackling the lack of skills or the lack of confidence that we've got, which is making us feel exposed or that lack of security that our entrepreneurial risk might bring. Often the worry and the fear of inertia is way worse than starting to make traction and a plan towards our goals. 
From an evolutionary perspective, fear was designed to help us to avoid anything which could result in a loss of life. But we've added in the loss of control, the loss of self-esteem and a loss of status or money or time. In a world where we're so conscious of what everyone else thinks of us, we've become fearful of anything which threatens our reputation. It's easy to stay in the crowd and not take risks. But that's not where we live our most fulfilled and successful lives and the things that we can look back on with great pride once we've achieved them. Fear is an essential signal, but we can't always fall for the trick that every time we feel slightly uncomfortable, we quiver in fear. Most fear isn't life or death. It's just a data point. Fear is a question to say, here's something to get your attention. Are you still sure you want to go forward? The good news is that the closer we get to our fears, the more we see they're not as scary as they seem. When we get that full beam of light on them, those scary shadows disappear and we're just left with that question. Do you want to progress or do you want to be held back? So I really hope you've found this examination of fear useful. If you're thinking of moving jobs or even starting your own company, remember that fear is false evidence appearing real because our brain wants us to live in that small safe box. But what about the regret we'll feel if we don't make our move now? So now we understand the trick that fear is trying to play on our brain, and we understand how we can calmly and rashly appraise the situation and turn it into a treat that can actually be a gift that can transform our lives. And after a couple of years of the pandemic, I'm sure we all feel like we want to be more bold and courageous to create the lives that we all want. So let's blind the ghosts of our past and take those important first steps. Until next time, good luck. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com.